And welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. I am uh, obviously not here. Those of you who watch me by video anyway, you could care less. But for the rest of you who normally come to the Bayside campus, uh, not here. This whole week has been a zoo for me. Our airplane broke down and my schedule's a complete mess. And I'm chasing my tail even as we're taping this this afternoon so that you guys can hear this Wednesday night. My apologies for who are comfortable with seeing me all the time, but uh, it's okay. You don't have to always touch the pastor to get the messages. Um, so anyway, uh, your continued prayer and, and support, you know, it, it's not like deep sympathy here. Of course, I wouldn't get any. You know, if I was driving a used car and it broke down, then everybody would feel sorry. You know, when your private plane doesn't work, it's like, oh, gee, how terrible is that? My private plane didn't work this week. I mean, how terrible can my life be? It's still pretty cool and blessings and all this kind of stuff. But it is what it is. It just messed up my travel schedule and it's been <sighs> crazy, nuts, insane. And a Lathan covered for me for this last uh, Sunday, I am going to tape this for this Wednesday, and then my brother Eddie's going to kick in for me this coming Sunday, so I appreciate your patience. Then everything settles down, and by then, hopefully sometime this week, the plane will be back in the air, and uh, we'll uh, have our handle on our travel schedule. Anyway, our Wednesday night Bible study is when we get together and we open up a book of the Bible and pretty much go through it verse by verse. Certainly that's how we do it in the New Testament. Old Testament, we skip over sections that seem to be really repetitive or just genealogies and stuff that don't really affect us in any way. Um, But by and large, we're still going through it verse by verse and looking at the scriptures and putting it all into context for you. Now, we are in the book of Genesis. It's a book... About the beginnings, how everything began, not just creation, but where, where did the Jewish faith come from? Where did all these patriarchs in the Bible that we talk about come from? And, and uh, you know, Moses, all this, how, where did all that come about? Because Genesis takes us right up to that point. Um, it's, it's really a fascinating book to understand where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. Uh, you know, we talk about Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. Where, where's all that from? And we're about to... Uh, Discover that as we continue here in Genesis. Now we are, Genesis the 27th chapter, we've been reading about uh, uh, Jacob uh, and Esau, uh, the twins. Esau should have been the first brother who got all the blessings, uh, did not get it because he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. And, uh, um, and then he tricked his dad into thinking he was Esau and he got the blessings and stuff. So the whole thing is, it's kind of hard to relate to. It's a little bizarre, particularly even from Western culture. For example, the fact that his brother was hungry and he said, well, sell me your birthright for the bowl of soup. And he said, yeah, go ahead. I don't care. I mean, they really held him to that. We don't live in a culture like that where every word we say, say really has meaning. Really to our own uh, detriment, I think, today. You know, it, even a hundred years ago in this country, the big thing was being a, a man of your word. What you say was your bond, and you were stuck to your bond no matter what. Uh, we've all been guilty of uh, not sticking to what we say for whatever reasons and stuff. I certainly have been guilty of that uh, in times past. Um, it's, it's easy for us to justify it from different ways. Some of it might be legit. You know, I've 
basically gone back on stuff that I said because I agreed to something that was all baloney in the first place. It's like someone selling you a car saying, you know, hey, this car is great. You'll get 100 miles a gallon. You go, great, great, fabulous. So you buy it and I'll pay you for it. And then you start driving it and it only gets six miles to a gallon. You know, you feel justified in saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to live by this deal. What you told me was a lie. It wasn't really true. So some of that stuff might have some uh, legitimacy to it. Uh, but one thing we do know that in the Old Testament, uh, certainly in the beginning time, these guys took what they said extremely seriously. Uh, to give you an example, for example, let's say me and my brother Eddie were having some stupid argument and I sold him my birthright position in the family for a bowl of soup. Uh, and then he tries to step in later, you know, I'd go to court. And the, and the judge would say, uh, why do you think you should get it first? And Eddie say, well, because he gave it to me for uh, a bowl of soup. And the judge would say, well, did you get it in writing? And did you get it notarized? And stuff like that. And he goes, no, I guess I didn't. And so it would have no legal standing. Okay, that's what uh, Esau could have done had he lived today. Because in a typical Western court of law, this whole deal wouldn't have meant much of anything. But it's Eastern culture, and it did mean a great deal. When you said something back then, it was a big deal. Uh, consequently, I don't think people were as quick to rattle off at the mouth, kind of like we are today. Uh, they took things much more seriously, uh, much more reflectively than we do in this culture. Again, there's a lots of stuff that we'll read in the Bible because so much, so much of it has to do with Eastern culture that from our worldview, it, it's kind of hard to reconcile. But it's just that it's different. Is, is all I can tell you. Now, I will say this, that, and I started talking about this last week. This whole idea of, of, of when you say something, it's a big deal. When, when um, uh, Isaac went and blessed uh, Jacob instead of Esau, uh, and then Esau came back later crying, uh, if I'd have been the pop, I would have said, wait a minute, that little squirrel cheated me. You know, oh, forget all that. Esau gets the blessing. You can't do it that way. But again, there was so heavily weighted on what they said that once he blessed him with everything then his son was crying Esau said can you give me anything and he said I, I can't I gave everything to to Jacob even though uh it was under under a degree of deceit though Esau said it was going to be okay when he asked for the bowl of soup uh still it's again very very odd from our worldview all I can tell you in the heaviest of terms that when these people spoke they took it extremely seriously I don't think they were giving to blathering and just talking off the top of their heads much because people held them to and they lived by what they said uh, now which I, I was talking about last week about this is how God really is much more in this sense that's why God isn't likely to just keep repeating himself people say well why, God, why doesn't God tell me what to do he did it's called the Bible. He already told you what to do. Say, well, I haven't read it yet. Well, that's your problem, okay? And that's really the way God looks at it. If you want to hear what I've got to say, read it. Now, if God has something specifically for you that's not here, that's something of, of uh, unusual detail, he'll speak to you one way or the other to make himself clear. But even then, he's not inclined to just keep repeating himself ad nauseum. God takes his word very seriously. When he speaks it, boom, it happens. And uh, that's why God doesn't feel like he needs to speak constantly. I mean, one of the things people will say, well, how, you know, God spoke to these prophets over these thousands of years. How come he's not doing it today? Well, again, this was over thousands of years, and he doesn't repeat himself. Once everything gets down and it's available to all, he's pretty much done. 
takes his word very seriously. Remember, it was his word. He didn't physically make stuff happen. He merely spoke and said, let there be light. Boom, the universe jumps too, and there's light. How is that possible? Because God's word is so powerful. And it's not taken lightly. And when God says something, ho chi mama, it happens. Okay? God says, let such and stuff have, let this happen. He went around speaking this stuff. All of creation jumps to, and stuff started happening just because he spoke. That is the power of God's word. The good news, that same power is available to you and I in the scriptures. That's why you want to read the Bible. That's why you want to become familiar with it. That's why you're here even tonight, so that you can learn more and more about the scripture, because we take what God says and how he's dealt with mankind very, 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 very seriously. There's a lot of weight to this. Okay, so this lazy attitude today, well, I don't want to read the Bible. God will just tell me if he wants something. And how come God never spoke to me about this? And I didn't know that was wrong. God never told me, you know, hey, on Judgment Day, you are going to be held up to a standard right here. All right, whether you read it or not. Now, in that respect, Western culture at least still holds to that. You're guilty of laws whether you know there's a law against it or not. If you break the law and you say, well, I didn't know that there was a law, legally, it doesn't matter. Uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So in that respect, at least we still have that standard going today. So we need to understand what God says. And, and when we view these people and how heavily they were, uh, how heavily they weighted their words, again, it will seem odd to us. But uh, again, just because we live in such a culture today where people's words and what they say almost mean absolutely nothing, even legally, very weak standing. Uh, it wasn't always like that in this country, but today, unless you get it in writing and attorneys have looked at it and it's been notarized and signed in triplicate and da 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 da, you know, why? Because we put such heavy uh, emphasis on paper, written word, and we don't even take spoken word very seriously. I think very much to our detriment. And again, in this culture, we're all a little bit guilty of that without a doubt. So when we read these stories and why he couldn't have just blessed Esau with something uh, he said I can't I, I blessed Jacob I gave him everything well give me something I, I can't because I said it you know again for us we would have just rewound it and said wait wait Jake come on don't be selfish give your brother something you know what I'm saying again this is who we are and stuff but this is how they were and they took this stuff very very seriously so we're going to pick it up at uh, Genesis 27 starting at verse 41 now Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. No kidding. I mean, talk about ticked off. He, I'd have a grudge too. I mean, he was really, really angry. Even though he's the guy who said, yeah, you can have my blessing. Just give me the bowl of soup. Well, anyway, he says to himself, the days of mourning of my father are near. In other words, I'm almost done. They had a, a traditional time of weeping and mourning for the father. He says, as soon as that's done, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. I am going after this rascal. I'm going to wring his neck. Well... Rebecca was told what her older son Esau had said, and then she sent for her younger son Jacob. Remember, he's mama's boy, and Rebecca favored Jacob. And then she said to him, hey, look, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Then, now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him... Not very likely. But anyway, I'll send word for you to come back here. Why should I lose both of you in one day? So, then Rebecca says to Isaac, 
kind of setting this whole thing because he's trying to get uh, Jacob out of town to go uh, over by, by Laban. Rebecca says, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. Remember, Esau, poor Esau, I mean, this guy, he married two Hittite women. And remember, uh, Rebecca couldn't stand them. Mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, not getting along. What a shock, I can't believe it. But uh, that's what was happening. So Rebecca kind of uses this because she knows that uh, he doesn't like, she doesn't like the daughter-in-laws. And actually, uh, Isaac doesn't like them either. But uh, so she uses that. And she says, look, I'm disgusted with living. I, I can't live anymore. I'm going to die just because of these Hittite women. A little melodramatic, shall we say. But she says, look, if Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, in other words, if he does the same thing from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So she just goes into this big pity fit and this very dramatic thing. I'm going to end my life if, if I, I can't stand these daughter-in-laws. Don't let Jacob marry anybody like this. While there was truth to this, because we know that both Isaac and uh, Rebecca did not like these daughter-in-laws, she was milking the situation, which we see played out now in the next verse, which is the beginning of chapter 8, 28. So Isaac then calls for Jacob and blesses him and commands him, listen, don't marry a Canaanite woman. (laughs) Why? Because your mother's going to kill herself and I can't handle this stress. She's stressing me out. She's making me crazy. So don't marry a Hittite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Uh, again, marrying cousins was quite the rage back then. Uh, actually, this was really pretty traditional uh, even into the 1800s. People frequently would marry, uh, and even early parts of the 1900s in some places, uh, and I think for a long time, actually, in some southern states, you could still marry your cousin. But, uh, you know, I know that grosses us out now, but this was very much accepted, really, for the bulk of human experience. The fact that we take greater distance in relatives today is great, uh, but what we do now today with such separation from even cousins and stuff is fairly new to the human experience. Back then, it was very, very, very common, and again, for thousands of years, up until even 100 years ago, very common. So he's sending him back to find a cousin. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take, a possession, take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, uh, the Aramean, the, the brother of Rebekah who was the mother of Jacob and Esau, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he blessed them uh, when he commanded, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite were, women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahath, Mahalath, Mahalaf, the uh, sister of <laughs> the boy, whatever all these names, of the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. What is this saying? Whew, a lot of words. Esau really, really, really loved his father. Remember, there was a strong connection between Esau and Isaac and the strong connection between Rebekah and Jacob. So anyway, he hears that 
the father says, don't marry a Canaanite woman. You know, go, which is really being egged on by mom. Well, when he hears this now, he feels badly because he married Canaanite women. And he finds out that they're so disappointed in him. And, and he was still trying to uh, uh, gather favor with his father. A man very close to his father, loved his father. When he found out that that's what he told Jacob, now he felt really badly. Gee, mom and dad can't stand my wives. So he goes and, and marries a relative uh, from, uh, from Ishmael. Again, still keeping it very close in the family here because, you know, that's, uh, Jacob went to get a, a cousin. Now he wants to go get a cousin to try if that's what dad wants because these Canaanite women were not relatives and it was causing problems and stuff like that. So that's what Esau does. Well, now Jacob uh, left Beersheba and went, set out for Haran. Now, what we're going to read is uh, one of the famous dreams that Jacob had. Uh, you will hear... Uh, sometimes in old Negro spirituals and, and, and some Old Testament references to Jacob's ladder. To Jacob's ladder. This whole Jacob's ladder thing is a vision that uh, Jacob has at this point in his life. So he's heading back home uh, to find a relative. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taken, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Not exactly a... Sealy posturepedic, you know, but these guys would grab a rock for a pillow to, to, to go to sleep at night. So here he is sleeping, head on the rock, in the middle of nowhere, and he has a dream in which he sees a stairway, or traditionally translated a, a ladder, but a stairway might actually be a better uh, analogy. But he saw a stairway in this vision. He saw he sees a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, like this gigantic escalator from earth to heaven. He sees this vision. And, and it shows that God is involved in the affairs of men as, as eternal beings are coming back and forth between heaven and, and earth. Now, there above this staircase, ladder, whatever that he sees, he sees the Lord. And, he, and God says to him, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Now what's happening? Now the promise is being handed on to the next guy. That's why you hear so much in the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These three patriarchs. It was a big deal. God makes his promise to Abraham. Comes along and he makes it again to Isaac. And then he comes along and he makes it again to Jacob. Okay? So uh, he's saying, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to be, have all these great descendants. Your descendants, he says in verse 14, will be like the dust of the earth. What does that mean? They'll be dusty people? No, it just means there's so much dust all over the place. You, you can't number it all. That's how many descendants you're going to have. They're going to fill the earth. It's going to be innumerable. You're going to have a great nation, which is a continuing of the promise given to Abraham. And it says, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, all the people's on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. How will that happen? Through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It is through this family. That's why we're reading about this family. Genesis, remember, it was just a few chapters of this is how it happened in the beginning. This is how men fell. This is this, the, the, uh, the, the flood, the ark, all this stuff. You know, the Tower of Babel. This stuff just boom, boom, boom. Just very quick accounts. Now we're getting into all this detail in Genesis of this family. Because the focus of Genesis really, when it talks about the beginnings, is where did the Jewish nation come from? 
Where did the Messiah come from? Who, where did this all happen? How did this happen? And what they're doing is laying down that all this happened through this family, this one significant family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the children of Israel, uh, Jacob becomes known as Israel, and, and uh, on and on we go. So that's why all of this is a big deal. Uh, he says, uh, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God makes this huge promise to him, again, passing on that same promise in the dream. And Jacob then, in verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He was so blown away by this vision that he saw. And he thought, surely this must be the gate of heaven where the angels ascend and descend. And exactly what all that means is is up for all kinds of debate. But but, uh, very simply put, that he was seeing a demonstration of the fact that heaven is involved in moving in the earth and looking out for the concerns of God in the earth. And uh, he wakes up from this dream and he's blown away because he has now had a dream from God. And, and let me share this with you. You know, the Bible talks about in the last days, men uh, will see, see vision, will have dreams, uh, sons and daughters will prophesy. Everybody the Holy Spirit will fall on will ha- start having these wonderful spiritual experiences. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And we still live in that time. God doesn't just speak To the pastor. God doesn't just speak to the Pope or some hierarchy off in the distance. God now speaks to everybody and deals in the lives of everybody. Again, you need to read the scriptures and become aware of what's here. Because you can't just say, well, God will tell me. Because again, God's not into just repeating himself over and over again. You need to look and see what's here. But even in that context, God still will speak to people about specific things and direction they can take. Uh, and I personally believe the more you have the revealed word of God inside of you, the more likely you are to experience God speaking to you on a more personal level. But God will still speak to you, and he speaks to people in a variety of ways. Now, I am often highly suspicious, I should say, Sounds like a bad word, but, you know, I just, I'm just a little taken back by people who are constantly claiming God's talking to them in detail, like they're listening to Rush Limbaugh on AM radio or something. Well, God told me this, and then God, and then I went over here, and God told me to say hi to this guy, and I said hi to this guy, and then God spoke me to get get up the next morning and put on brown socks, because he didn't even want me wearing balloon socks that day, and I went over there, and God told me to turn left and go around this building instead of going right, and, you know, man, that stuff creeps me out. I... If God is telling them that, and I say if, because quite frankly, I seriously doubt it. I think these people are thinking every thought that pops into their head is God talking to them. Uh, Don't think like that. All the thoughts popping in your head are not from God. Every single thought you think is not God telling you something. Uh, Particularly if you're constantly under the sense that God is speaking. Man, according to these people, Abraham and these guys who literally spoke to God never heard nearly as much as these people. I mean, come on. God spoke to these guys, but we're looking at guys who lived 100 years or 150 years or 200 years. And we'd see a handful of specific times where God spoke to them. Even these guys, I don't think God was talking to them every day about every little detail of their lives. I just, I think you need to be careful. Um, You know, at a minimum, have some humility and say, you know, I, I, I feel like God is speaking to me about this, that, or the other. If you think the Spirit is leading you one way or the other. But this... 
dialogue of God told me this and God told me that. And we've gotten that listening to preachers on radio and television who talk in those terms. Especially charismatic or Pentecostal preachers. Well, I was doing this and God spoke to me to do this and God told me this and God... And I think a lot of people in the church think, well, that's normal. That's how it should be. And I do not think that is normal. I really don't. In fact, I think that has been so abused. That's why we have so many Christians today in America who won't do anything because they're waiting for God to talk to them because that's what he did to evangelist so-and-so on TV. How come he doesn't do that to me? And they sit around and they're wasting their lives not doing anything significant for God, blowing all the opportunities and wasting time, which someday they're going to have to give an account for, all thinking they're waiting to hear from God. God needs to tell me. And there's so much emphasis on it today that people literally look for these thoughts popping in their heads as more important than the scriptures. And it is not. You are delusional. And that's why it's not unusual to hear people who violate the Bible to lean on and say, well, God told me. Horse rubbish, God told you. God is not schizophrenic. He doesn't violate his own word. The Bible says clearly, for example, do not commit adultery. And then people will actually commit adultery. Say, well, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said it was okay because we really loved each other. You are full of baloney. There's no way God told you that. And I don't care if an angel appears to you in technicolor and is in high definition television and surround sound. Some angel or some vision or some thought comes flying through your mind telling you that it's the opposite of what the Bible says. That is a false revelation. You cannot lean on that stuff. This is our standard. This is the basic line. Why God has revealed in his truth to these prophets and these men and women of God. This is where stuff that's been tested over thousands of years. You can't just wait for some personal revelation to go around that. Now having said all of that, I still believe God still speaks to people today. Again, I don't think it's this ridiculous constant conversation on every little detail of life. But God will speak to you. And he'll speak sometimes in dramatic ways. Sometimes it's just, boy, you can feel in your heart, you know, that maybe you shouldn't be doing something. And you can't even explain it. But it's like the Holy Spirit playing the umpire in your heart saying, whoa, 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 don't go that direction. Don't make that decision. Don't go this way. You need to listen to that kind of stuff. And I still believe, as the prophet said, that God will speak to people in visions and in dreams. Um... And if you've ever had a spiritual dream, I have had one, two, maybe three times in my life where I've had a dream that I believe God spoke to me in the dream. Um, I generally don't get that much of dramatic revelation when I'm awake. (laughs) Maybe God's got to put me out of my back and knock my head off so I shut up for five minutes so he can actually talk to me. I would thoroughly agree with that, but there's been a couple of major times in my life when I have been sleeping and I have had a dream where God spoke to me about something specific in my life. And all I can tell you is if that ever happens for you, you will know it. And it is significant and it is cool. It is seriously cool. And this is not a pizza dream. This isn't the same dream you had when you were shooting aliens from outer space. This, you, you can sense the presence of God. In, and in fact, the times that this has happened for me, I literally have felt God's presence more strongly in those couple of dreams that I've had in my life than any time I've ever been awake. And I've been in some amazing services where God was touching and great anointed ministry of worship and praise and preachers and stuff, man. Over the last 35 years, I've been in some pretty amazing places, but never have I sensed the presence of God more strongly than in those few times when I experienced 
a spiritual dream. And I knew it was God. And I could feel God like I've never felt God. And it's, and the dream itself is just different. It has a clarity to it. There's something different. There's something. You don't wake up thinking, gee, I wonder if that was God. I mean, you wake up, wow. Ho Chi Mama, that was amazing. And in the times that happened in my life, it has been life-changing. God speaking to me in times where I had to make a major decision in my life. There were fears and insecurities and things that I was struggling with. Maybe I'd been fasting and praying, looking for an answer. And all of a sudden, boom, I have this. And it just settles me down because I know God has spoken to me and given me direction. And, and in my life, this spiritual dream thing has, uh, again, only a few times over a lifetime here but uh, it's significant and it was just like this when Jacob wakes up he goes wow surely God is in this place I mean it's that kind of experience where you know that God has spoken to you and you can remember things in crystal detail that it's not like any other dream you'll ever have so trust me if you ever have to doubt if a dream came from God May not have come from God, boy, because when this happens, if it happens, and it doesn't happen to everybody, but if it happens to you, it'll be clear, man, you will know it, and it's powerful, and it's wonderful, and I think it's the kind of stuff we need to desire in our lives. God, speak to us, not in this piddly, phony, spiritual kind of nonsense way, but in significant ways that really empower us and give us wisdom and revelation in God, and and God give us clear direction in, in which ways to go. So anyway... This is Jacob. He wakes up after the stream. Wow. And then it says in verse 18. Early the next morning Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head. And set it up as a pillar. And poured oil on top of it. And he called the place Bethel. Though the city used to be called Luz. Which uh, I think means uh, light. But uh, Bethel means house of God. And uh, so he, he called it Bethel. A lot of churches are called Bethel Church or Bethel Tabernacle. Some universities, Bethel. Where does that name come from? It comes from this Old Testament here. The word Bethel meaning house of God. And that's why a lot of churches or places of worship adopt the name Bethel in, in their church title. Uh, house of God. Because he felt like he really experienced God in this dream. So anyway, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and his stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, he makes this vow to God, I will give you a tenth. All right, now who was the first one to do that? Written in the Bible, Abraham. When... Melchizedek the priest came, gave him a tithe, the 10% gave to God. Uh, and then this went down, and now it's also down to Jacob. I mean, here he's having this great uh, experience with God. And it's interesting, because we're, we're doing this thing right now in our church, you know, 40 days of purpose to a, to a more, or 40 days to a more generous life. Uh, why is it important? Why does God even deal with us about money? Because Jesus said, where your money is, that's where your heart is. And you can see this reflected when God really touches. And it's interesting how many times you'll see in the Old Testament where God really touches somebody and the response is they give God money. <laughs> they give God uh, an offering, something sp- specific to God. And a lot of times it was this idea of the tenth, which the Bible calls the tithe, which is an old King James word. But it means 10%. I mean, this is something that goes way back. And by the way, just for a point of, of, of interest and note here, God, or, or these guys were doing this 
long before the law of Moses, there is no law here. There's no laws here. I mean, they're just basic uh, principles of right and wrong and, and, and stuff like that. was dealing with men in a very generic sense at this time. There were no Ten Commandments. There was no law of Moses. There was Because I say that because later on, this practice became law. You had to do it. Now, Christians now who look back on that, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, that was part of the law. We don't have to tithe today because that was the Old Testament law. Yes and no. It was part of the Old Testament law. And we don't live under the Old Testament law anymore, granted. But this practice was in place long, hundreds of years before there was any law at all. Men have always worshipped God and honored God in this way. And it goes back to the earliest of times of human history. And uh, why it's not unusual for uh, religions all over the world for people to have this practice of giving God 10. Where where does everybody get this idea of 10%? It comes from this. This is part of our DNA as human beings from the beginning. Uh, So anyway, Christians today who now say, We don't have to tithe because it's not part of the law. Well, they're right. We don't have to tithe. And I remember one time going to some place in town and someone said to me, Oh, you're that church that believes people have to give 10%. And I said, No, 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 no. That's not us. And they were surprised and said, Really? I said, We don't believe you have to give 10%. We believe you should give 10%. And there's a big difference. Under the law of Moses, it was obligatory. You had no choice. We as Christians willfully acknowledge we don't have to do this, but we believe we should do it. We get to do it as a, an act of faith, as an act of practice, going back to the very beginnings of time before there was any laws, any regulations, any Ten Commandments, anything. Men on the face of the earth in a way of honoring God gave them 10%. Of whatever they were blessed with in life. And we see as a result of that. God continued to bless them. And they just they became so wealthy. It was ridiculous some of these guys. Uh, and God's promises are still like that today. Now it doesn't mean that God's going to make you a multimillionaire. But what the promises are. Is that if you will honor God in this way. With the first 10%. If you make a dollar. You, you give God a dime. That these people are blessed by God. And they're blessed financially by God. And sometimes literally by financial ways. Others, other ways that you can't really see. You know, maybe their car runs longer than it should. Maybe while other people's air conditioners are breaking, theirs isn't. You know, what, what's the bottom line? They're further ahead in life just because of the blessings of God, because they honor God. And I can say this uh, truthfully from, from my life, and I know there's lots of people who can share this ex- uh, testimony with you, that those who do this will tell you at the end of the day that they are ahead further financially, living on 90% than if they lived on all 10%. Why? Things go better for them. They succeed more in life. Uh, Financially, things just seem to go their way. What's that called? It's called the blessings of God. And in point of fact, if you will do this, you will find your life will be further ahead living on the 90 than the 10. Absolute crystal clear principle in the scriptures from both before and after the law of Moses, which that law we are not obligated to live under today as, as Christians. So, besides, the only other percentage, this is just an odd argument that Christians would have that we don't have to tithe. <clears throat> they say, well, you don't, see, you don't hear a whole lot about it in the New Testament. No, the only other percentage you hear about in the New Testament is 100%. 
I mean, it was that or the tithe. I mean, you pick. If you don't want to tithe. Anyone to say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't think we have to tithe because the New Testament doesn't talk about that. And then you don't give anything or you give 3%. Whatever. I mean, you can do whatever you want. But man, you're making that stuff up. The only other example in the New Testament was 100%. That's where Jesus came to people and said, forsake all. And follow me. And these guys left homes. They left uh, uh, businesses. They left, they, they left their nets, the fishermen. I mean, these guys literally would give 100% of everything they owned to the poor. And then they would come and follow Christ in their lives. So, again, any, you know, we're certainly not advocating unless God speaks to you. To, and there's people today who do that. I mean, they give up everything to go into the mission field. They'll give up everything to go into ministry. They'll go, you know, that still happens today for people. Uh, my wife and I, there was a time in our life we lived under that principle. We gave up everything. We, and everything that we had, we gave into the ministry. Uh, and we didn't own anything uh, significant because we just weren't interested in money at all. We were just in full-time ministry, and that's, that's what we did. And we're greatly blessed. Uh, some of the greatest blessings in our lives is when we had absolutely nothing. <laughs> but we were living by faith, and we'd given God everything, and we weren't uh, putting money first. Uh, and, and it was great. So... Um, either way works for me, but just anyone who uses the example of because we're Christians, we don't have to give anything to God is delusional. I mean, that's not the message of Christianity. Trust me on this. So anyway, the standard that we encourage people here in the church is the same standard that these guys live by, which is living uh, on that 90% giving God the 10. All right, continuing on, Jacob now arrives back at the uh, country of his... uh, Uh, family. Chapter 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return to the stone, the stone to the place over the mouth of the well. All right, so here's this big well. They roll back a stone. Everybody comes, all the sheep and stuff like that, and then they would cover it back up again. Uh, Jacob asked the shepherds, uh, My brothers, where are you from? Well, we're from Haran, they replied. Haran? Woohoo, I'm looking for Haran. So he says to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? And they all said, Sure, we know him. Well, then Jacob asked, Is he well? Yeah, yeah, they said, uh, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep now. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. Uh, We can't until all the flocks have gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Well, while he was talking with them, sure enough, here comes Rachel, came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, I'm sure on the cheek, uh, and began to weep aloud. Why is he crying? He was so blessed that he finally found a relative. Remember, this is what Abraham's servant was trying to find for Isaac, a relative. These guys were really into finding family and it wasn't like they had, you know, uh, everybody on the, the sprint plan where we could all call each other within the same circle of family or whatever the deal is. I mean, people were not connected. This was a big deal. So he kisses her. He starts crying. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father, a 
a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Again, they were just lit up as they could be about finding family. All right, now check this out. This is, this is a story of how Jacob marries Rachel. <laughs> One of the funny stories in the Bible but uh, let's, let's check it out here. This is, this is kind of interesting. So after Jacob had stayed with him for, for uh, a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So he's doing something. He was working and helping for that month. He says, come on, you're a relative. I should pay you something. Come on. Well, now Laban had two daughters. The older, uh, the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. This is the cute chick that he saw at the well. Well, Leah had weak eyes, which is a way of... Uh, referring that she wasn't that physically attractive but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful so the older sister I'm sure she was lovely but not the super babe like Rachel well Jacob was in love with Rachel no kidding uh, and said I'll tell you what this is what I'll do for my work I will work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel (coughs) holy cow Seven stinking years. Now that's a long time. But this was the deal. So Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. (laughs) So why not, he says, you know, better you get her than somebody else. So stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And all the ladies went, oh, you know, so that was kind of... It it seemed like nothing to him because that's how crazy he was about this girl. It seemed like a few days, even though it was years. Reminds me of a story I I tell about my my son, Philip, who on Debbie and I's 30th wedding anniversary, he calls me up and says, Dad, congratulations, 30 years. And I said, thank you, son. I appreciate that. And then he says, really, man, that's a long time. And I laughed and I said, yeah, but honestly, Phil, I said it. Seems like 10 minutes. And he goes, really? I said, yeah, 10 minutes underwater. (laughs) It's a joke. Lighten up. All right. So, but here's it. It just seems like a few days to him because he's so crazy in love with this girl. Then Jacob said to Laban, okay, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. (laughs) Oh, isn't that romantic? I haven't had this for seven years. I want to get laid. Come on. Give me my wife. So that, that, that's his romantic end of this whole deal. And by the way, there was no dating and stuff during this time. He wasn't even talking to this girl. How do you know this, you say? You'll find out in a minute how you knew this. But that was the custom. They, she was arm's length big time. But just from a distance, he was in love with her because she was obviously quite the babe. I wouldn't call it love, 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 deep love like we would think of it but you know he loved her because she was quite the looker so he comes on come on my turn now let me have the girl so verse 22 says now so laban brought together all the people of the palace of of the place was no palace and gave them a feast but when evening came he took his daughter leah and gave her to jacob and then jacob lay with her jacob has sex with her spends the night with her and laban gave his servant girl zilpha to his daughter as her maid servant. <laughs> so check it out. 
here, Jacob works for seven years for super chick Rachel on his wedding night. Again, they didn't have lights like we have in here. It must have been pretty dark, and I'm sure she had veils and stuff like that. And so Leah goes in, and he thinks it's Rachel. How do you know they never dated? I'm telling you. When I was dating my wife, I'd have known in a heartbeat if she had walked into her the room or her sister walked into the room. I'm telling you, we, you know, you would know people. Well, they didn't know anything because there was not that connection, that dating thing. When these people, their idea of dating was, you want to get married? Yeah, okay. And that was it. And their introduction to each other was having sex. That was the first time they really got a chance to know each other. Talk about a handshake. <coughs> wow. So anyway, he spends the night with Leah. Well, in verse 25, when morning came, <laughs> there was Leah. He rolls over thinking he's going to see super babe uh, Rachel. And, ah, what, what is this? So Jacob says to Lathan, what is this you have done to me? I serve you for Rachel, didn't I? Wasn't that the deal? That's what he said. Why have you deceived me? Then Laban replied, well, listen, it's just not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Well, it would have been nice if you would have shared that in the beginning. Anyway, so he says this to him. (laughs) Again, I find highly entertaining and very bizarre. So he knows he's upset. So he says this, finish the daughter's bridal week. Uh, then when, uh, then we will give you the younger one also and return for another seven years of work. Uh, so what he says is, okay, you spent the night with her. You know, finish it out for the week. <laughs> Before Leah. Oh, my goodness gracious. So keep having sex with her for a week. You know, finish out her honeymoon. You know, don't, don't, don't rip her off. Sleep with her for the week. And then you can have Leah in exchange for another seven years. Now, if you're used to hearing this story, kind of like when you were in Sunday school and stuff like that, you very much get the impression that he had had to work for another seven years before he got Rachel. That's not what happened. He only had to wait seven days. But then he had to put in another seven years for her. So that idea of he had to work seven years for Leah and then had to wait another seven years to Rachel is, is not how it happened, as you can read here. You finish it out for the week, then you can have Rachel, but then you owe me another seven years. Well, okay, but at least he got it right away. So, uh, Jacob <laughs> had to endure what a rough job of having sex with his sister for a week, waiting for Leah. Uh, and it says, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. Oh, God bless him. And then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. So it happened right away. Again, this idea of he waited for another seven years is not true. That's not what the Bible says. He got it right away. And then Laban gave his servant girl, Billa to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Why are they telling us the name of the maidservant chicks? Because we're going to learn more about that as the story goes along here. And then finally Jacob lay with Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And then he worked for Laban for another seven years. Poor Leah. God bless her heart. And, uh, and uh, what, a, what a bizarre turn of events all of this is. When we come back next sun, uh, Wednesday night, and I will be here with you at the, at the Bayside campus, the rest of you you're used to video. Anyway, but uh, we will pick it up, and we are going to see now where these 12 tribes of Israel came from. It's a little bizarre, and it's not what you would think. Uh, anyway, we'll pick it up from there, and we'll learn who are these 12 tribes, who are these 12 individuals that come as a result of him marrying this, these two sisters. Okay, we'll see you next Wednesday. God bless.